Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 31 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Adolf Hitler's religion. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So Adolf Hitler is, as you know, everyone knows, the most sinister person of the 20th century. Everyone knows that name. And his ideology of war and racism and hatred led to the millions of deaths. That's indisputable. So what was it that drove a person to become Adolf Hitler? What made him adopt these abominable policies? And did any views on religion play a role in this? And there's a a lack of information on this subject in the public sphere, much less than you'd expect. And much of what you hear is wrong. And that's why we'll be discussing Adolf Hitler's religion today on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, I understand that you've made a study of Hitler's religion for some time. So what can you tell us about that? Well, um, it's something I've been curious about for a very long time. I've actually for decades, I've, I've sought out information about this just because it's it's this inexplicable evil in history. Right. And, you know, I, I remember back in the 90s being in bookstores. This was pre-internet. And looking through the indexes, or properly speaking, the indices of biographies of Hitler, you know, trying to find information on what he believed about religion. And I found very little. It was it was kind of weird. I even talked to people who who studied Hitler closely and they said, yeah, there's kind of a reluctance to discuss this as if religion doesn't really have anything to do with what with his worldview. And that never struck me as plausible. Um, I can imagine someone ending up becoming an authoritarian dictator without strong opinions about religion. You know, God and the afterlife, those are the principal subjects of religion. I could imagine someone who, let's say they're an agnostic, but they end up in political power and they're afraid of losing it. And so they adopt authoritarian measures to hang on to power. And and even though they're not personally don't have any like strong religious convictions, I can imagine that. But that's not who Hitler was. He wasn't just an opportunist. He was an ideologue. Mm-hmm. He had a very specific ideology that was driving him and that he infected other people around him with. And I the thing about ideologues is they've got ideas about stuff. That's kind of the problem. They're too fixed on a particular set of ideas as if they're the master key to everything. And so anytime you have someone who's an ideologue like that, they're going to have some ideas about, and especially an ideologue who involves life and death, like the survival of this race and the death of another, any ideologue dealing with matters of life and death is going to have some kind of ideas about God and the afterlife. Now, he may be an atheist. Right. He may say, oh, there's no God and there's no afterlife. But it, that's still having ideas about it. And so like communist ideologues in the 20th century had definite ideas about um, about religion. They didn't like it. But uh, something had to be motivating them. And so it always struck me as, well, something had to be motivating Hitler as well. Uh, he had to have views on these topics. What were they? And it was really hard to find good information. Um, I did eventually find a book that um, that discussed some of this in more depth, and we'll I'll mention that book later on. Unfortunately, it was it was I ended up concluding it was not reliable. I relied on it for a time. To my embarrassment, I even put out a tape at the time uh, as part of my apologetic work that included some material from this book. But the more I studied it, the more I thought about it. I said, this isn't this isn't well done. Um, I need something of a scholarly nature that that looks at this. And fortunately, now the situation has changed a great deal. Um, Now, with the with 
the internet, it's much easier to find information on this. Wikipedia's page on Hitler's religious views is actually pretty good. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, as we'll mention. And also, there have been more scholarly books that have appeared and appeared in English uh, as well. There's one in particular that is a recent book by um, by a historian named, I want to get his first name right. I already remember his last name, um, Richard Weikert. And it's called Hitler's Religion. The subtitle is like The Twisted Beliefs That Drove Nazi Germany. But it's Hitler's Religion is the book by Richard Weikart, and it's a very carefully done, uh, thoughtful study that interacts with the views of various scholars to, where he tries to support his position and gives you the evidence from Hitler's own books like Mein Kampf and speeches and private conversations, which is important to know because as a politician, what Hitler believed in, and said in private doesn't always match with what he said right. in public. So what what are the different claims about Hitler's religion? What do people say that all the different options are? Well, they they basically fall into four categories. Uh, the first one says that Hitler was an occultist or a neo-pagan, someone who wanted to bring back like the worship of the Norse gods or who otherwise dabbled with occult practices like astrology and legends about, you know, um, you know, all kinds of occult stuff, um, even if it wasn't specifically neo-pagan. So the, the this is the Raiders of the Lost Ark theory. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there is an actual group that that the Raiders of the Lost Ark is based on. There's an actual German group, mm. which we'll be talking about in a future episode of Mysterious World. Excellent. Uh, about the real life version of that. Um, but basically, so option one is he was an occultist or a pagan. Option two, he was an atheist. Option three, he was a Christian, and some will further refine that to say specifically he was a he was a Catholic, okay. even a committed Catholic. And then the final option is none of the above. Hitler was something else. So uh, obviously, there's going to be a faith perspective on this because that's what we're talking about. Uh, but let's start with the reason perspective uh, and and kind of look at this from the from from reason. What does reason tell us about Hitler's religion? Well, so it is kind of, as you note, it's a little unusual to talk about someone's religion under the reason perspective, but that's what essentially what we're doing. We're saying, what does the historical record show about this? Not right. is he right or wrong, just what we'll get to that. And spoiler warning, he was wrong. <laughs> um, but uh, but just what does reason tell us based on the historical evidence about what this guy believed? Um well, basically, we need to look at each of the four options that we covered above. So the first option is, was he an occultist or a pagan? And there were occult and pagan ideas floating around in German culture at the time, including uh, in um, Vienna, where Hitler uh, lived for some time during his, uh, during his young adulthood. There were uh, there were occultist and neo-pagan organizations that were right there in Vienna that had um, <clears throat> publications that uh, even some of the authors claimed Hitler subscribed to. Uh, one in particular early on, he kind of said, oh, yeah, Hitler's like a big fan of mine. He once stopped by my office and asked for some back issues he'd missed. Um, okay. So you had that. Also, there were high-ranking members of the Nazi party, including Heinrich Himmler and uh, another guy named Rosenberg, who were neo-pagans and who wanted to bring back the worship of Wotan, that's the Germanic version of Odin, and Thor, and gods like that. So there were hmm. uh, associates of Hitler who were into this stuff. And so that's one of the reasons that some people have said, well, Hitler was one of these people, too. Um, and that's part of one of the books that I mentioned uh, is by an American journalist named Dusty Sklar. And in her book, The Nazis and the Occult, she explores a bunch of these connections. In later years, I found a bunch of documentaries that you can see. Some of them are on Amazon Prime that talk about the Nazi connections to occultism and neo-paganism. 
but that's doesn't answer the question did Hitler himself believe this stuff so what does the the evidence say about Hitler's belief uh, on these topics what are we, uh, on the uh, being a cultist or a pagan so we need to look both at what he said in public and what he said in private as a, a summary of what he said in public Richard Weikert, the author of Hitler's Religion, uh, which is the better book, um, he says, at the Nuremberg Party rally in September 1938, Hitler confronted head-on the neo-paganism in his own party. Some Germans were becoming unsettled at Rosenberg's and Himmler's attempts to resurrect ancient Germanic gods, rites, and shrines. Hitler reassured his followers that this did not represent the official party position nor did it correspond with his own perspective. So that was the his public uh, stance on this. Yeah. Now, it does that match up with what he said in private? Because as a politician, he could be lying in public to keep all of those Christians on board who are getting uncomfortable with what Rosenberg and Himmler are doing. Um, but in fact, it does line up with what Hitler did in private. Um, his uh, architect, his favorite architect, Albert Speer, um, noted that in private, Hitler not only dismissed neo-pagan stuff, he mocked Himmler. Himmler mm. was, even though he was an important Nazi official, um, he wasn't someone that Hitler kept really close or liked a whole bunch. And he was perfectly capable of mocking Himmler's um, neo-paganism. In fact, according to Speer, uh, he recounts an incident where Hitler said about Himmler's religious efforts, what nonsense. Here we have at last reached an age that has left all mysticism behind it, and now he wants to start that all over again. We might just as well have stayed with the church. At least it had tradition. To think that I may someday be turned into an SS saint. Can you imagine it? I would turn over in my grave. <laughs> That's that's uh, quite a statement by him. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, well, he was known for making some quite statements. Oh, yes, yes, this is true. <laughs> I can... Yeah, also, yeah. Uh, Richard Weikert notes that, um, and this is a quote from his book, Himmler's military adjutant... Uh, Hitler's. Like, Hitler's yes. military adjutant likewise recalled that Hitler disapproved of Himmler's plans to reintroduce the cult of Wotan and Thor. In October 1941... Hitler ranted again about the foolishness of trying to resurrect the cult of Wotan. Okay. So, so yeah. Yeah. So we have good evidence that both in public and in private, Hitler was not on board with this occult neo-pagan stuff. Why do people think that Hitler may have been an atheist? Well, it's easy to characterize him as an atheist in part because his behavior is so godless. Right. I mean, he, he led to the death of millions um, and he had this kind of totalitarian state that's sort of of a piece with, you know, the communist totalitarian states that were arising in the 20th century. Nazism did not have a prominent religious component to it. And so it would be easy to say, OK, well, Hitler's basically the same kind of thing as like a Stalin or a Lenin or a Mao. You know, he's this godless guy. He may not be as publicly opposed to religion as the others. But it's easy to read him as the same sort of thing. Beyond that, some of Hitler's contemporaries also described him in atheistic terms. One was an early uh, Nazi party official named Otto Strasser, and another was Hitler's friend Ernst Hanstengel, um, who said that, quote, he was to all intents and purposes an atheist by the time I got to know him, close quote. Um, now, there's so you have some of his contemporaries saying this, but both of these guys turned on Hitler. Right. They they did not remain friends. And it was after they ceased to be friends that they were saying this. So you have to take into account, well, maybe they're just trying to paint him in a bad light um, now that they've turned on him. And notice that Hanstengel says he was, to all intents and purposes, an atheist, suggesting, well, maybe he was just very irreligious. You know, he didn't practice, go, he didn't go to church, he didn't practice the religion, he didn't pray, he didn't do stuff like that. When you add a qualifier like to all intents and purposes, 
that suggests that, no, there's really something there. It's just not very big. So given that, and then the, the statement to Spear that occurs to me, he says, you know, we have at last reached an age that has left all mysticism behind it. That seems to indicate mm-hmm. yeah, uh, a, a secularizing view. perspective. Yeah. Okay. So what other evidence do we have on his views on atheism then? Well, so he did refer to religion in public. And um, for example, in 1937, and so this is before the start of the war, um, he remarked that the German national anthem, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, mm-hmm. um, he, uh, he said that this anthem constitutes a pledge to the Almighty, to his will and to his work. For man has not created this Volk, that means people, he's referring to the German people. Uh, So man has not created this Volk, but God, that that God who stands above us all. So he is talking about God in public. Now, there's then the question, was this just political opportunism? Because, you know, lots of politicians talk about God to win votes, even if they don't personally believe in him. Um, so we need to look at what did he say in private? Well, here, uh, Weikert has another good summary. He says, was this just a pose for public consumption? Not likely. Hitler not only appealed to providence, which is a, another way of saying God, um, Hitler not only appealed to providence as his guide in many public speeches and in both of his books, but he did He also did the same in his private monologues with his associates. Uh, His closest colleagues also testified that he believed Providence had anointed him for a special task. So he sees himself as like this man of destiny who's been given a destiny by divine Providence. So that might indicate that he might believe in God of some sort, uh, but but not surely whether he holds some sort of particular conventional right. religious viewpoint. So yeah. why, do, why do people think that Hitler may have been a Christian and specifically a Catholic? Well, he was baptized as a Catholic, as a baby, which was normal for people in, where he was born. Ninety percent of everybody in Austria was uh, was baptized Catholic. So he was, too. Um, but he left the practice of the faith um, early on. His dad was a was like a free thinker. His mom was a devout Catholic, but his dad was like a free thinker. And eventually his dad's point of view kind of won out. Um, he he did get confirmed as a as a boy, but he according to witnesses, um, it's like he did so very reluctantly. And like the priest was having to drag the words out of him. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of kids who get confirmed, he wasn't sincere about it. Right. Um, And he then, as an adult, just stopped going to church. um, And he he would only very rarely go like to go to someone's wedding or to a funeral or something like that. But he didn't he didn't practice it in public. And he would mock in private the views of um, of uh, of devout Christians. Um, Now, his ideology, also Nazi ideology, was very strongly opposed to Catholic teaching. So much so that in uh, before the war, Pope Pius XI um, issued an encyclical called Mit Brennender Sorge, um, which is German for with burning anxiety or hmm. with burning concern. And this was unusual that it was written in German because normally encyclicals are written in Latin in this period and then translated into, ger- into whatever local language was needed. But this one, they actually wrote it in German. And then because and it was this sustained condemnation of all this stuff that the Nazi state was doing. And they knew that the Nazis were not going to want this read. And so what they did in um, 1937, as I recall correctly, um, they smuggled it into Germany and had it secretly printed and then read from the pulpit of every Catholic church in Germany on Palm Sunday when everybody was there for Palm Sunday services. Wow. So they were like getting maximum exposure for this condemnation of Nazism. Um, needless to say, Hitler was enraged. Yeah. Um, but uh, in any event, so despite the claims of some, 
the Catholic Church and uh, and the Nazis were on a big collision course. And we'll actually discuss that in an upcoming episode where we'll talk about the wartime Pope Pius XII and his opposition to Hitler. Um, but in any event, what we know is that Hitler uh, early on abandoned the faith he was raised in. He did, as part of, in public, he would portray himself as a Christian, but non-denominationally. Uh, he wouldn't, he's like, I'm a proud Catholic. He wouldn't say stuff like that. He would say, I'm a Christian, and all Christians, include both Protestants and Catholics in Germany, need to support this, the state. Um, even then, though, even in his portrayal of himself as a Christian, he hated Christian ideology, Christian belief so much that he couldn't help bashing it and reinterpreting it. So like early in his career, he would say things like, I'm in favor of positive Christianity. And it was like, well, what's positive Christianity? Um, well, it turned out positive Christianity was a Christianity that portrayed Jesus as a great Aryan who fought Jewish materialism. And he then used this image of Jesus as a fighter to inspire his followers to also fight. So in 1923, he gave a speech in which he said, we must bring Christianity to the fore again, but fighting Christianity, which he said did not involve mute acceptance of suffering, but rather a doctrine of struggle against injustice. And he concluded by saying, now is the time to fight with fist and sword. So okay. this is what he means by positive Christianity. Right. Yeah. Um, his understanding of Jesus was just bizarre. Um, according to him, Jesus was not a Jew. So right. let that sink in for a moment. Right. Um, Weichart notes that, quote, in April 1921, he told a crowd in Rosenheim that he could not imagine Christ as anything other than blonde haired and blue eyed, making making clear that he considered Jesus an Aryan. In an interview with a journal in November of 1922, he actually claimed Jesus was Germanic. Yeah, this this is yeah. like some of those problematic uh uh, uh, popular drawings that you see sometimes of like Jesus playing soccer with the kids uh, with yeah. blonde hair and blue eyes. Sorry, Jesus was born in a particular place at a particular time. <laughs> to a particular people. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, although he was okay with seeing Jesus martyred, like one of his favorite things was the Bible stories was the, and he didn't like a lot of the Bible because it had all that Jewish stuff in it. Right. But he really did like the story of the, of the, uh, expulsion of the money changers sure because he could make the money changers um this symbol of jewish greediness and then when jesus drives them out of the temple he gets his, his oh i can portray jesus as being a fighter now against jewish materialism so he really liked that story but not so much the rest of the gospel story all that <laughs> right. mercy and love for your enemies and you know oh, none of that he didn't want any of that um, and he also didn't want, he, he would say, okay, so Jesus cleared the temple that led to him being crucified, but then no resurrection. Hmm. Um, according to Hitler, um, this was according to his confidant, Otto Wagner, uh, Christ's body was removed from the tomb to keep it from being an object of veneration and a tangible relic of the great new founder of a religion. So he didn't believe in, in the resurrection. Jesus was just right. a martyr, and that was it. Also, Jesus didn't believe in an afterlife. I mean, sorry, phew, Hitler didn't believe in an afterlife, so obviously Jesus didn't have one. Right. Hitler thought that you—and we'll, I'll just mention this briefly, although we won't really dwell on it. Hitler thought that you somehow—the individual did not survive death, but the Volk or the people did. So the so you could kind of live on after death through the impact you had on your Volk. So if you did things to glorify and build up your Volk, that was the only real kind of survival you'd have after death. It was just the impact you left in the world. Right. It, 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 Nazism was inherently a non-individual. Uh, you know, the individual yeah. subsumed to the to the greater whole sort of ideology. Right. Right. Okay. So so Hitler was in public professing himself, especially early on, a Christian, although as his power grew, he stopped. He largely dropped the positive Christianity business. 
Um, he didn't ever s- criticize Jesus, but he had this bizarre version of Jesus that was just like his own thing. Right. No historical grounding for. So, so that, so in, so in public, and, and perhaps you might even say that publicly at that time, most people were still re- religious and, and most people in Germany were Christian. So you maybe up as a politician, you had to at least nod in that direction. But what was he like in private with with the Christianity? Well, so in private, um, it, it the mask does come off. And here his private behavior does differ from his public behavior. Uh, he was being a hypocrite about supporting Christianity, although even then he hated it so much he had to do this bizarre reinterpretation of it. Um, in private, as early as 1931, Weikert notes, Goebbels uh, recorded that Hitler wished to withdraw from the Catholic Church, but was waiting for the right moment. Hitler's wish seemed to excite Goebbels, even though he admitted it would cause a scandal. But Goebbels relished the thought that he, Hitler, and other Nazi leaders would someday leave the churches in mass. And this was something that um, that Goebbels actually wanted to do now. Goebbels had, if as I recall correctly, a Protestant background, and he told Hitler he wanted to like quit the official Lutheran Church. Um, and Hitler told him, "No, this isn't the right time. We'll do that later." And so Goebbels imagined, "Okay, we need to consolidate our power, and then once that's done, all of us Nazi officials can publicly renounce our faith without it harming us politically." And so that was his hope. And he says Hitler wanted to do that. It just wasn't the right time. Um, Hitler also envisioned privately the demise of Christianity. Uh, In 1937, he told Goebbels, who was his propaganda minister, um, that he thought Christianity was dying. And Goebbels wrote in his diary that the Fuhrer thinks Christianity is ripe for destruction. That may still take a long time, but it is coming. One reason that it would take time is that Hitler felt the need to keep the German people united for purposes of fighting the war, which broke out in 1939. Um, in 1941, he told his district lieutenants, uh, "This is an ins- there is an insoluble contradiction between the Christian and the Germanic heroic worldview. However, this contradiction cannot be resolved during the war, but after the war, we must step up to solve this contradiction. So he was envisioning a big persecution of Christianity once he had won the war. Um, On the other hand, this didn't mean Hitler was an atheist. Um, He privately told a Nazi newspaper editor named Hans Ziegler, um, quote, you must know I am a heathen. I understand that to mean a non-Christian. Of course, I have an inward relationship to a cosmic almighty, to a godhead, close quote. Mm. So Hitler based, and this is consistent with the rest of the evidence we've seen, he he didn't buy traditional Christianity, but he also didn't buy atheism he or occultism or neo-paganism. Um, he did believe there was some kind of God, but he was on this highly materialistic, secularizing trend. So given all that, <clears throat> What what would what could we say Hitler was? What was what what was his religion? Well, we've eliminated the first three of the options we considered, so that leaves us with number four: none of the above. Um, Hitler really didn't fit into the standard religious categories of his time. I mean, he kind of did. He he was something else, if you want to put it that way. Um, but this and this something else was sort of unique to him. But it was based on elements that were floating around in German culture at the time. Basically, Hitler was an eclecticist who would borrow one idea from one spot and one idea from another spot and kind of stitch them together in his own mind. Um, his, as a result of that, his position was based on elements that were present in German culture, but it didn't have a name. So if we were going to name it, the basic answer is that we could say religiously, Hitler was a pseudoscientific evolutionary pantheist. Okay. That's the that's the basics. He was a pseudoscientific evolutionary pantheist. So let's break that down uh part by part. Let's start with that last part. What do you mean when you say Hitler was a pantheist? 
So pantheism is a viewpoint that um, basically holds that God is everything. Um, so there's no distinction between the creature and the creator. Um, it's derived from a couple of Greek, Greek roots, pan in Greek, or pan, it means everything or all. And uh, theism is derived from theos, which means God. So it's the idea that all is God. Um, and its defining characteristic is saying, okay, the universe itself is God. Uh, there are different flavors of pantheism, some of which are are more a little slope more towards atheism like okay we're it, some have said that okay pantheism's atheism with a polite face because you're attributing some kind of mystical significance but it really doesn't have a mind it doesn't have intentionality it's not conscious it's not a person others would go in the other direction and say okay god is the world but it does have some kind of overarching mind or intelligence or purpose um so there are different flavors of it Pantheism began to get, gain traction in Europe in the 1600s, ironically, as the result of the Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Um, and you might wonder, well, why would Hitler want anything to do with that? You know, if it was a Jewish right. guy who popularized this. Um, but it was later repopularized in Germany by the Germanic, <clears throat> by the German philosopher Hegel. Right. So Hitler may have picked it up from Hegel and other folks in Germany. Um, thus, in 1941, Hitler spoke of, quote, the helplessness of humanity in the face of the eternal law of nature. It is not harmful if we only come to the knowledge that the entire salvation of humanity lies in trying to comprehend the divine providence and not believing that he can rebel against that law. And as Weikert notes, in this passage, Hitler equated divine providence with natural laws that are also eternal. So if you're equating God with natural law, you're equating God with nature. And we know Hitler was a big nature fan. He'd go on nature hikes, he'd sing the praises of nature and all that, because this was to him divine. Um, okay. Hitler also, and this was not unique to him, but Hitler also um, did not believe that the world was created. Like a lot of people, he thought it was eternal. Um, this was something like, for example, Albert Einstein had a big problem with the idea of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. Because like a lot of astronomers of the period, he thought, no, it's always been there. Um, but uh, and, and Hitler was just another one of those people. So that's why he refers to nature having eternal laws. Um, instead, rather than being able to appeal to a loving creator who could intervene in human history, Hitler thought people simply have to submit to the iron laws of nature if they want to prosper. So that's how he would be a pantheist. And as I think mm -hmm. about it, like pantheists, is like people sometimes go, oh, if the, the universe will bring us back together again, they kind of refer to uh, to nature in terms that we would sometimes refer, yeah. refer to God. Okay, so that's... that's and, and if the universe is bringing us all back together again, I'm going, no, actually, it's accelerating in the other direction. <laughs> exactly. Gravity's not that strong. All right. So that's that's the, that's the his pantheist part of that. Uh, so why would we say uh, Hitler's religion was evolutionary? Well, because it was highly focused on the theory of evolution. And, you know, as you know, social Darwinism was a big thing at this time, as was eugenics, the idea that you could improve races and racial stocks by selective breeding. And Hitler was all over that. Um, so he was very much into evolution. And that explains his view of the hierarchy of races, where you have like Germans at the top, Anglo-Saxons a little bit below that. Um I guess French people may be below that. And then you have like African American or Africans and Jews at the bottom. And um, so he, he had this racial hierarchy in mind. And he thought, based on this survival of the fittest idea that's, you know, often used to explain how evolution works, well, if if the fittest survive and the weak perish, then what you want is racial conflict. Because that's what will drive evolution forward. Um, you want the races to be in conflict with each other so that the strong survive and the weak get weeded out 
And so in this respect, he's a lot like the shadows on Babylon 5. Hmm. He basically has a shadow philosophy where you want to encourage chaos and conflict as a way of driving things forward in a kind of creative destruction. Okay. Um, this also explains why he was opposed to race mixing. Because if you have this hierarchy of races, so like every German is superior to every Jew, and then a German and a Jew hook up and have a baby, well, what's that going to do to their racial line? It's going to pull down the the off the level of the offspring that the German would have had by mixing in these nasty Jewish elements. Right. And so it's going to dilute the better races if you allow them to interbreed with the lesser races. So he therefore opposed race mixing. He also supported euthanasia because if this is all about improving the racial stock by um by promoting the survival of the strongest and eliminating the weakest, well, why bother having a war to fight to eliminate the weak? Why not just Put them to death as soon as you identify them as weak. So um, for people who um, who, you know, had birth defects or mental you know defects or things like that, his idea was let's just euthanize them and that'll improve overall public health by eliminating these people who are defectives. I have to say that a, a really effective illustration of, of a, a lot of these elements you're talking about here is this this current show, The, the Man in the High Castle. That yes. shows an alternate history of what would have happened had the the Nazis won the war, um, and you see a lot of this playing out. Uh, the The writers of the show really have taken these elements uh, to heart. Very interesting. Yeah, and, yeah. They they really get a lot right on that show in terms of of Hitler's plans for after the war. You'll notice on that show that they have these things that are kind of like churches. They perform the same social function, but there's like nothing religious about them. Right. They're like these meeting halls where people get together and have ceremonies and talk about how great Nazism is. So like this is Hitler's image of post-persecution, post-war churches. Right, right. And you have a lot of uh, the weak, uh, diseased and whatever they want to say, you know, being uh, weeded out and sent to, to death and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So... um and so Hitler would even say this is, you know, it's your duty if you're weak to mm. to submit yourself for euthanasia, because that's how you're going to improve your Volk. And you're not going to have any after death survival apart from how you helped or hurt your Volk. So so if you're if you've got a serious birth defect, you need to be euthanized. You need to accept that. And of course, this is not only against the Christian ethic of killing. Uh, especially killing the innocents, it's also against the Christian belief in equality and universal love that we need to show to everybody, even our enemies. Oh. So the evolutionary pantheistic, uh, why do you say uh, his his religion was pseudoscientific? Well, um, for a couple of reasons. One is he did entertain pseudoscientific ideas, even apart from the evolutionary stuff. Um, for example, he was a fan of a guy named Hans Harbiger, um, who had something called the world ice theory. And Herbiger didn't really, he was an engineer, and he didn't really base this on science, but he was looking at the moon one night and had a revelation that the moon is a giant sphere of ice. <laughs> That's why it looks that way. Okay. And he, from that, developed the idea that the world is, the universe is, uh, bound up in a conflict between fire and ice and that this understanding this conflict between fire and ice is essential to understanding human history and destiny and things like that and and hitler was a big fan of this even though um you know reputable scientists at the time said no this is nonsense the moon is not a big ball of ice we can tell that yeah. you know i mean you don't have to go to it you can just from the orbital mechanics and the size of the moon, you can deduce its density is not the same as frozen right. water. It's also not a giant egg. It's also not a giant egg. Yes. <laughs> different different show. Uh, okay. So, yeah. so that part of pseudoscience is what other unscientific aspects? Well, his evolution, his understanding of evolution, of evolution is unscientific. Um, that's, so that's why I would say he's a pseudoscientific evolutionary pantheist. He gets evolution wrong. 
Um, one of the things about, and he, he got it wrong in a way a lot of people did and sometimes still do, um, this whole idea of a hierarchy of species is not scientific. Um, it's kind of based on the social structures that people lived in back when society was more highly stratified. So you had nobles and commoners and peasants and all this stuff. And people lived in a kind of stratified social order with, you know, king at the top, then dukes and duchesses, then, you know, others. And um, and so it was natural to think of the different species in that way. Also, in the 19th century, there was this big myth of progress, that we're making progress towards bigger and better things. And then we made progress towards the atomic bomb, and suddenly that got reevaluated. <laughs> Um, but in, in Hitler's intellectually formative years, there was this idea of progress that like evolution only works in one way and promotes the survival of the fittest. And by the fittest, Hitler seemed to understand that to mean like the strongest and the most aggressive. So the strongest hmm. and the most aggressive are the ones who are going to win the conflicts with the weaker ones. But that's not what being fit in evolutionary terms means. Right. It doesn't mean being stronger and more aggressive. It means being better adapted to your environment. So if you're adapted to your environment, you're fit to live in that environment. And what counts as fitness is not a, a, a unidirectional thing. There's no single standard for what makes you fit. As your environment changes, What's going to count as fit is going to vary. So, for example, um, you know, the dinosaurs once lived on Earth, but then something happened. The most common idea is it was an asteroid impact occurred that changed the environment so that the dinosaurs were no longer able to live in it. They were no longer fit for the post-impact environment, and they all died out. Because, let's say, the sunlight, you know, there's a nuclear winter. The sunlight uh, gets blocked. The plants they need for the herbivores to eat in massive quantities die out. As the herbivores die out, the carnivores die out, and their food chain collapses Right, because of environmental change. That then allowed our ancestors, the mammals, to move into those now empty ecological niches and start their own development. Right. We certainly weren't more stronger or more aggressive than uh, the T-Rex or, or, the, or yeah. the other, as Jurassic exactly. Park shows us. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, back during the Cold War, there's all this worry about our environment may change again in a way that's not suitable for us. So we have a big nuclear war. The environment becomes ra too radioactive for us. All the humans die. But guess what? The cockroaches <laughs> are the ones who are now fit to live in the post-nuclear environment. And they're not the stronger or more aggressive than us. We right. can easily step on and kill a cockroach, as I hope we all do from time to time. <laughs> right. So uh, so th that's part of the unscientific. And is there other yeah. elements to that? There, Yeah, there are a couple. Um, one of them is he neglected the role of altruism. So even though it's kind of puzzling in evolutionary terms to explain the origin of altruism in a rigorous way, you can see that there are benefits to helping weaker members of your group. That's why, it, and by doing so, you encourage their contributions. Right. So um, so, you know, if you imagine a group of people and you say, we're going to kill everybody in this town who can't bench press 200 pounds. Well, you're going to kill almost everyone in the town. The economy is going to collapse because <laughs> you now don't have other people making contributions. And so even though they were physically weaker, they were doing important things that helped the community. Right. You can observe in nature that like it, it in in within species groups that they protect one another, including weaker parts of their community, wolf packs right. and that sort of thing. Exactly. And humans do the same thing because the weaker members and, and you know, people are weak in different ways, but on any given spectrum, the people who are weaker in one area are going to make contributions in another area. And so it's it's in everybody's interest to promote the group as a whole and not simply say, oh, you're too weak, we're going to get rid of you. So he neglected the positive role of altruism. Mm -hmm. Also, his idea about race mixing is totally bonkers. I mean, imagine. So let's take this principle of you shouldn't mix races because they're in this hierarchy of better and worse. 
and you're going to dilute the better if you let them breed with the worse. Okay, why should that principle happen just on the level of races? Let's apply it on a smaller scale to families. Right. So the only the best families can breed with each other. They can't breed with other lesser common families, which would bring down their bloodline. We've actually experimented with that in European history, with <laughs> royals only being able to date royals. Yes. You know what the result was? <laughs> Mad King George. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was inbreeding um, because and all of the problems that flow from inbreeding, because when uh, you have a genetically non-diverse stock, you know, everyone's genes are like everybody else's genes. You tend to get errors replicating and becoming dominant. So you get birth defects. That's why a lot of European royals had hemophilia. Same thing happened in ancient Egypt, as we'll talk about in the King Tut murder episode. Um, same thing happened among the pharaohs. Uh, if you Also, um, if everybody's genetically similar and a disease comes along that can act on those genes, then the disease can kill almost everybody. So actually, you want a genetically diverse population. You were going to say? There's another example, too. Like, you know, just... If you look at the Germanic peoples, they're adapted for a particular environment of Northern mm -hmm. Europe. Um, but, yeah. you know, if they don't breed with other uh, people from other places, uh, well, Northern European folks, if they went to places that are, say, tropical with lots of sun, well, there's a there's a, a, a weakness, which is they burn yeah. <laughs> easily. Skin, you know, they get sunburned easily. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a very. A, right. They're not they're not as fit for that environment. Right. That's the right. OK, I can see that now. All right. Yeah. So um, pseudoscientific evolutionary yeah. pantheist. Yeah. Uh, well, there's one other aspect, though, to the to the race mixing thing, oh, okay. um, which is so not just do you have inbreeding, but there's the reverse of that, um, which is a phenomenon known as hybrid vigor, where if you cross two things uh, that are genetically dissimilar, the offspring can often be superior to the parents in one mm. way or another. So it may have greater disease resistance or things like that. Um, actually, there's a famous example of that in fiction. Uh, I don't know that the writers were consciously aware of this. They may have just kind of stumbled into it. But Mr. Spock mm. is an example of hybrid vigor because he's not just stronger than a human or smarter than as he's not like halfway between human and Vulcan in terms of his abilities. He's smart even for a Vulcan. Right. You know, and he's he's he ends up having positive characteristics from both of his genetic parents leading to him having hybrid vigor. Uh and that's you could say well that's fiction and that's true, but it's a real phenomenon that's known in biology. Right, right. So diverse, diverse uh, breeding rather than in-group breeding actually does help people. So pseudo, he's a pseudo-scientific pseudo evolutionary pantheist. Um, that's sort of where we come to the reason perspective, looking at his, mm -hmm. his beliefs. Uh, from a faith perspective, what can we say about Hitler's religion? Well, um, this will be fairly brief, but obviously he was wrong <laughs> um, from a Christian perspective. And his pseudoscience led him into a pseudo-religion. Because mm -hmm. it was the thing that was driving this was was um, his ideas about evolution and mm -hmm. how it worked. And he was wrong about that. Um, and so consequently, that led him into this pseudo pseudo religion. He ignored divine revelation, which would have clarified his uh, understanding of, OK, there is a distinction between the creator and the creation. So it's not pantheism. Also, atonement is real and Jesus did rise from the dead and all that stuff. Um, and ultimately, it's an illustration of how right reason is in harmony with right religion. And if you get adopt false religious ideas, it'll lead you into bad scientific ideas. And if you adopt false scientific ideas, it'll lead you into bad religious ideas. That's that's an important lesson that continues, uh, I would say, without going into that. But uh, yeah. that's an important lesson. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line uh, then on, you, you, given your decades of, of interest in this topic, what's your bottom line on Hitler's religion? Well, basically, as we said, he was a pseudoscientific evolutionary pantheist. Uh, he also was, to a degree, a political opportunist um, who partly withheld his religious views from the public um, and sort of mimed Christianity, but at the, during part of his career. 
But he ultimately, even then, couldn't hide his hatred of Christianity in its true form, and especially his hatred of Judaism. So if people wanted to find out more about this, what further resources do you have for them? Uh, I'll have an article uh, that I wrote on this subject in the show notes, also a link to Richard Weikert's book, Hitler's Religion. Uh, also, there will be an article on Hans Herbiger's World Ice Theory, which we mm. mentioned briefly on Wikipedia, and an, an, an article also that I wrote on how Pope Pius XII worked to protect Jews from the Nazi Holocaust during World War II and also Wikipedia's page on Hitler's religious views, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, Wikipedia, I know, protects certain pages on controversial subjects to prevent them from being uh, misconstrued by people. So you can trust those actually pretty well. And the ones on Hitler are among the most protected. So I, yeah. that should be a good read. Okay, so now we have our uh, segment where we talk about mysterious feedback. We get the feedback from from you folks, which we love to hear. On our episode on the mystery of the multiverse, uh, Warren writes on Facebook, um, his is an exceptionally good uh, overview of the, I'm sorry, I'm misreading. This is an exceptionally good overview of the theories, a confusing topic at best, but Jimmy Akin provides a very clear lecture that hits the important bullseye. Thank you very much, Warren. I, I really try to make things clear first for myself so that I can understand it and then for other folks, too. So and then uh, Marty sends us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. He writes, uh, with regard to multiverses relating to possibilities and decisions, it's sometimes discussed as the decision spawns a new universe for the consequences of those decisions. I see it the opposite. And there's a hint in quantum physics. I also see this working with God's plan. Think of this with quantum theory at the quantum level, all possibilities exist at the same time until the observation is taken, at which point the possibilities collapse into the observed reality. You referred to this in the episode. If that scales to the universe the way I see it, all of the possible futures exist, perhaps in what we conceptualize as multiple universes, until the decision is made, then those universes collapse into the reality based on the decision. God can see all of those universes, and thus all of the future ramifications of our actions, and he has the power and knowledge to know how he's going to work out his plan, no matter what our decision is. Over time, as we progress toward the end of time, all of the possible universes that account for all of our choices, bit by bit, collapse into the reality that is achieved based on our decisions. At the end of time, all choices will have been exhausted, and there will only remain one reality, one that ultimately completes God's plan. So it's an interesting perspective, Marty. And um, since I can't say that other universes or timelines exist, I mean, I don't have direct evidence for that. Um, it could be well that you're right. On the other hand, I could, uh, with his omnipotence, God could allow there to be other timelines as well. Um, so I think it's ultimately still something that we don't have a definitive answer for, either from science or from faith. Then uh, on YouTube, Heather Jaraz uh, sends us a comment. She writes, I listen to Mysterious World every Friday before going to bed. I find them very interesting, yet relaxing. Until last week on the Dyatlov Pass. <laughs> mm -hmm. A little unnerving to say the least. Good to mix it up a little bit, though. I think this week's episode will be back to the Mysterious World that I can handle. Keep on being mysterious, Jimmy. Thank you very much, Heather. And I do care and pay attention to the topic selection. I, I want to ensure a mix of different topics. Uh, you'll notice that every month for the four episodes we do in a typical month, um, I'll have like one that's related to UFOs or aliens or space. I'll have another that's related to religion or the paranormal, another that's related to history or science, and another that's kind of a wild card. So I'm consciously thinking about that. We will go into scary territory occasionally, including some true crime. Um, but uh, even then, I want to keep it uh, family friendly. So we're never going to have like gruesome descriptions and we're going to touch very lightly on such things. Good, good. My my kids, thank you. And thus, I thank you. <laughs> so uh, the the next is uh, from a commenter on YouTube who, whose name is The Resurrection is Coming, uh, says the multiverse destroys free will. What do you say about that? Well, some versions of the multiverse would. If you if you say that there is a um, uh, if you take the quantum, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and you say, OK, um, every 
event that can happen is caused to happen by God, then um, then that would seem to destroy free will. But that's not the only version of the multiverse that exists. Um, God can also say, okay, I'm creating the world and I'm going to allow each new free will choice to branch off a uh, a new timeline. Well, then he's not destroying free will. Now, that may mean you don't get the same same number of alternate timelines as if God forced every possible event to happen. You might have a somewhat smaller multiverse. It might still be infinite, but it would be a smaller range of infinity. Um, or it could end up being a finite multiverse with only, you know, a Google Googleplex of timelines in it. Mm. But um, but it, it there are versions of the multiverse that are compatible with free will. It's only if you say everything that can happen must happen in a, some non-random, non-free will fashion that free will ends up being destroyed. And then T comments on YouTube, if there are infinite universes where every possible reality exists, then wouldn't there be at least one universe where there is some type of intelligent life that could contact all the other universes? And shouldn't we have heard from them? Kind of like another level of the family paradox? Yeah, and I I like T's um, reasoning here. I always love seeing new applications of the Fermi paradox. We did an episode on that a while back, and for folks who may not remember, the Fermi paradox is the idea that, well, if the universe is as old as it is, then intelligent life should have had a chance to contact us by, you know, exploring the galaxy. So where is it? Um, and so T is proposing the same kind of thing. If there are all these universes out there, shouldn't one of them have colonized the other universes and made contact with all of us? Um, it's some versions of the multiverse theory that would be an issue for uh, potentially. But um, it, it, there are also answers to it that are pretty reasonable. Um, one of them, if you and if you go back and listen to our multiverse episode, you'll hear the a discussion of the different types of multiverses that have been proposed. One of them is type one multiverse. The idea is that the universe we live in extends infinitely, and what separates the different universes within it is the fact they're too far away from each other for to be to ever be reached because we're in an expanding universe and we can't travel faster than the speed of light. So there are other regions in our universe that are caught that are causally unconnected from us because we could never reach them, even if we traveled at the speed of light, since the, since the world is expanding. Um, so if light speed is a firm limit, then there would be no universes where someone figure out figures out how to go faster than light in our universe. Right. Um, so that would be why they're separate and why we haven't been contacted by another universe. Something similar happens with the type three multiverse, um, where which is the kind of quantum splitting uh, timelines version of the multiverse, because as physicists say, um, when one timeline branches off, it decoheres from the others. That's why people in one timeline can't experience what's happening in another timeline. And there may not be a way for people in one timeline to bridge to another timeline. It may just be a physical impossibility, like traveling faster than the speed of light conventionally is. Interesting, but uh, good thinking. I like to hear, yeah. like to hear these uh, different uh, uh, responses. So uh, that's all the feedback we have for this week. Uh, Jimmy, do we have some mysterious headlines? Yeah, just a few real quick. Uh, one of them is a science fiction staple of building a space station in an asteroid. So we mm. have an article from Science Alert, where about scientists uh, planning for the future, trying to figure out what would it be like to build a space station inside a giant asteroid. Mm. Uh, so check that out. Also, speaking of things scientists do, fortunately these days, scientists sometimes dismantle nuclear bombs. And so there's an article about what do they do when they actually start to dismantle a nuclear bomb? How do you do it safely? Interesting. How do you do it if it's not even your bomb? <laughs> and you do, <laughs> and you don't have the plans. Oh. Um so uh so interesting stuff there and finally uh aliens just cause the worst problems and so we have a story from a California man who claims that aliens flipped over his van on the highway. So you can oh, read wow. all about how the aliens flipped over his van causing a traffic problem. <laughs> 
I would like to see the insurance claim on that one. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Uh, before we finish up, uh, we'd like to take a moment to once again to thank our patrons who make this show possible. And today we're going to thank by name uh, several of you, Alfredo B, Ed B, Mary V, Miguel G, and Donna P. Through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at sqpn.com. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What do you think about uh, Adolf Hitler's religion and what Jimmy had to say about it? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave us some feedback there. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Or, or just send or just use hashtag mysterious feedback and we'll get it. Yes, we'll, we'll be looking for the hashtag just wherever. Um, if uh, please subscribe to the show, if you have not yet subscribed and you're li- just listening, you know, on the website or something like that, or someone alerted you to it, please subscribe to the show in uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app. Uh, there's the Apple podcast app. There's uh, Overcast, uh, Pocket Cast, there's plenty of those. Uh, you can also listen to us on YouTube. Where if you subscribe on YouTube, hit the bell to get notifications when we post new episodes. Uh, And please share the podcast with your friends and write a review in iTunes if you can, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts, whatever directory you use. That helps us get the word out and grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to all of the resources Jimmy mentioned in our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>